Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 16. For the month of December, you probably noticed inside your bulletin the uh, preaching schedule. We're going to take a temporary break from the Gospel of John to, to uh, prepare our hearts for Christmas. So over the month of December, we're going to be preaching out of the, the uh, Gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke with regard to the uh, birth of Christ. And it's all to, to help me <laughs> and to help you to get ready for Christmas. So we will work together to prepare our hearts for this significant celebration. Also on December 18th, let me just add my voice to that. It will be our special Christmas program. It'll be a great time for you to invite family or friends or neighbors, even work associates to come. Choirs working very hard, extra rehearsals to have prepare a special music program. And I will be preaching out of Luke's gospel, the shepherd's story. And so it would be a great time for you to invite people to come. Beloved, the, uh, the message of Christmas is the message of God's grace. It is absolutely a, a grace message. And God's grace is an amazing thing. Wouldn't you agree? I knew a young man, uh, for example, uh, 30 years ago, who was a rather militant atheist. And yet, by the grace of God, he now stands in a pulpit before you preaching the message of the resurrected Christ of him whom he once tried to destroy. God's grace is an absolutely amazing thing. And this morning what I want to do is I want to show you four examples of God's grace. I've entitled the message Grace Upon Grace Upon Grace Upon Grace because there is never an end to the grace of God. It is new every morning. It pours out to us. And I want to really do something that's probably a little bit different than we typically do. And, and that is I'm going to give you an ex- basically an extended illustration of the grace of God. One big extended illustration. And I want to do it out of this first part of Matthew's gospel, as you see here, chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Now, to a, to a modern reader, we'll read it here in a moment, but let me just lay a little foundation before we jump in. To a modern reader, this seems like an unusual way to open a book, wouldn't you agree? I mean, if you were trying to attract someone's interest in reading what you had to say, probably for you or I, the last thing we would do is to begin it with a series of names, wouldn't you think? Particularly hard names to pronounce. And so it's, this is, um, this is unusual for us. This doesn't ring easily on the modern ear. In fact, for many of you, and, and uh, let's be honest now, this is, uh, this is flyover zone, right? We, we were reading the scriptures together throughout the year, many of us, and we read this. And okay, I won't ask you to show your hands, but I know that for many of you, this was a, a quick skim through these verses, wasn't it? Or some of you just kind of immediately passed over. Let me get to, uh, let's see, uh, verse 16. Okay, I know what that one's about. And then you, you kind of entered in there. So this is flyover zone. Big temptation to skim it or pass over it quickly and miss 
absolutely miss the the mother load of spiritual truth that is included here in these verses. I wish we could take the time to, to really pull it apart. We're not going to do that. We are just going to dip in, as I said, in a rather large and extended illustration. But this is a rich deposit of the grace of God. Now, every uh, gospel writer presents his his message in a little bit different way. They present composite snapshot when taken together of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one comes at it a little bit differently. Only Luke and only Matthew provide a genealogy, a formal genealogy. Mark and John do not. Mark's gospel, which is is the presentation of Jesus as the suffering servant, has no genealogy to it. And as one writer said, and that's understandable, because who cares about the genealogy of a slave? And there's probably some truth to that. Mark's gospel is also marked by the word immediately that appears all through it. Again, the idea of urgency or quickness. And when you command a slave, you expect them to move. And so that characterizes Mark's gospel. John's gospel has no genealogy either. That's because John presents Jesus as the Son of God, and God, of course, has no genealogy. He has no forefathers. That lays us into Luke's gospel. Luke does present a genealogy, and Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. And that's significant because Luke's message is to present Jesus as the perfect man. And so he takes him back to that first man, Adam. And that leaves us into Matthew's gospel where we are here. Matthew's gospel, if you let your eyes look down to verse 1, notice it begins, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. David, or Matthew's genealogy, fixes Jesus Christ firmly in the two great figures of Israel's history. Abraham, the first Jew, right? Called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and then David, the great king. And so Matthew is presenting Christ as the fulfillment of the Davidic kinghood or kingly lineage, and he is rooting it in that. And so that's why he shows his gospel as it does, beginning with Abraham. This gospel, this lineage, this genealogy shown for us here is what establishes Jesus' lawful right to rule the nation of Israel upon the throne of David. Genealogies are important. To the Jewish mind, far more important than they are to us. We are Heinz 57, most of us, right? And uh, But that was not true in Israel. The purity of the bloodline was extremely important. And the ability to, to trace your ancestry gave you certain rights. For example, going into the land of Canaan after the conquest, the division of the land was based upon tribal uh, affiliation and so your lineage to a particular one of the 12 tribes determined where you lived in the land beyond that we know that in order to be a priest in order to have a ministry official ministry as a priest in the nation of israel you had to be able to trace your ancestry all the way back to aaron over in ezra chapter 2 verse 62 we note when they came back from the babylonian exile that there were certain priests that were disqualified because of their inability to prove their lineage so lineage was extremely important at the time of jesus the lineage or the genealogical records were kept by the sanhedrin and they were stored in the temple when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the genealogical records were destroyed as well, and there is no longer the ability to prove genealogy like there was 
in Jesus' day. So genealogy, extremely important. Further, Matthew organizes this genealogy into three groups of 14. Three groups of 14 names here is how he pulls it together. And he does this not because that's every single name between Abraham and Jesus, because it's clearly not. So it's not that he's trying to prove every single name. He's, he's, he's communicating something here to his readers and to us, if we will but pause and listen. He puts them into three categories of 14 to aid memorization. It made it that much easier for people to memorize the genealogy. And more importantly, it also lays out the three great periods of the history of the nation. The first genealogy, which runs from Abraham to David, the first 14, is the founding of the nation. The founding of the nation from its, from its uh, patriarch all the way to its first great king, Abraham to David. The second, uh, the second 14 is David to the destruction of the monarchy. And this is what leads Israel into what's known as its dark ages, its dark period. And the third group of 14 is, the, is from the destruction of the monarchy to the arrival of the Messiah, the hope of Israel, their consolation. Every link in this chain is important. We won't look at every link. We will only look at four of them this morning. But every link in this chain is is important and has been strategically chosen by Matthew to communicate what it is that he wants to communicate. And in this, we can see clearly the providential hand of God. Amongst both the wicked and the righteous, God is at work fulfilling his purposes, bringing about his perfect plan. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac, Jacob, and to Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram. And to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. And to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king and to david was born solomon by her who had been the wife of uriah and to solomon was born rehoboam and to rehoboam abijah and to abijah asa and to asa was born jehoshaphat and to jehoshaphat joram and to joram uzziah and to uzziah was born jotham and to jotham ahaz and to ahaz hezekiah and to hezekiah was born manasseh and to manasseh ammon and to ammon josiah And to Josiah was born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and Shealtiel Zerubbabel. And to Zerubbabel was born Abihud, and to Abihud Eliakim. And to Eliakim Azor, and to Azor Zadok, to Zadok Akim, to Akim Elihud. And to Elihud was born Eliezer, to Eliezer Matan, and to Matan Jacob, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. As we look at this genealogy, the thing that jumps out immediately, at least to me, is the occlusion of female names. It was unusual, to say the least, for female names to enter into the genealogies of Israel. 
If you review uh, the scriptures, you can go back, for example, to Genesis 5, to Genesis 10, look at some of the genealogies there, the genealogies recorded in Chronicles, you will find that there is an absence of female names. They're just not really there. So here it is, we enter into this genealogy that Matthew puts together, the genealogy of the Messiah, and there are four female names, not including, of course, his mother Mary, that appear here in this genealogy. That is surprising. And for a Bible reader, it should cause you to pause and circle them in your Bible and and put a question mark next to them and go, why? But what makes it even more surprising, even more amazing, is when you then circle those names and you go back and you check them out, you are shocked to find who these women really are. They are three very shameful women and one who was a foreigner and a pagan. So we have three shameful women, a foreigner and a pagan, all appearing in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and that should definitely cause you to go, wow. What is it that's being communicated here? Why is it that Matthew has chosen to do this? I mean, it's obvious that he has included them for a purpose. So the question to ask is, what purpose? Why these names? I mean, he could he scours the Old Testament and you could not find more shameful examples to include in the genealogy. These are the skeletons in the closet that are now put on display for all the world to see. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he not conceal them? Why would he not pass over them? Why would he not list those who were virtuous? Those that would contribute towards the, what he's trying to communicate, what you might think he's trying to communicate about the, the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. Why these shameful ladies? I think the answer, by the way, can be found in Matthew chapter 9. So go ahead and turn over there and let me just read to you. I think it can be found here in Matthew 9. And in fact, I think it has something to do even with who Matthew is. So Matthew 9, let's just pick it up in verse 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, if you know anything at all about the New Testament, you know that a tax collector was absolutely outcast in the nation of Israel. They were despised. They were hated. They were in league with the hated Romans to collect by extortion taxes from their own countrymen, send them off to Rome, keeping a skim for themselves. This is Matthew. He rose and followed Christ. Verse 10, And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Go back to Matthew 1. I think that is the reason for the inclusion of the four names in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, the wicked. Those are the ones that he came for. And beloved, that's a good thing because that's me and that's you right 
So it's a good thing that we find these names in here. What I'm going to do this morning is I want to look with you briefly at these four names. So I said this is one big extended illustration. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So let's look at the first name. Verse 3. To Judah was, were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now it's interesting here that he reminds his readers of Judah. But when he reminds them of Judah, he doesn't remind them of Judah in any virtuous way, does he? He doesn't recall to mind Judah of Genesis 49, where there was a prophecy of him that says that you are one of your brother. You are the one your brothers will praise. The scepter will not depart from you until Shiloh comes. Right. The great messianic promise given in Genesis 49 to Judah. He doesn't recall that. Nor does he recall Genesis 44 when uh, Judah stood before Joseph there down in Egypt and gave a very noble speech offering to himself in exchange for his brother Benjamin to be taken into slavery. He doesn't remember Judah in that way. What he remembers about Judah is his immoral union with his daughter-in-law. Go to Genesis 38. Genesis 38. It came about at that time, that is after Joseph had been sold off, that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Tazib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur's firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a kid from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord, that is he around his neck hanging on a, on a um, uh, some sort of a necklace kind of device, was a cylindrical uh, 
deal that, that had his family crest on it. And then he would use that to, to make an impression in the wax or the clay and seal an official document. So it was like a signet ring, but it hung around his neck. Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the kid by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road of Anayim? And they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, lest we shall become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this kid and you did not find her. Basically what he's saying, it's not really good for your, your image to be going around looking for a prostitute. Okay, so let's forget it. Now, after about three months later, Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I'm with child by the man to whom these things belong. She said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch that I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. What he's basically saying is, I had promised to raise up seed uh, through her to my family, and I didn't do it, and so she got it her own way. And it came about at the time she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb, Moreover, it took place that while she was giving birth, one put out a hand and the midwife took, tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Now it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So she named him Perez, which means breach. And afterwards, his brother came out who had a scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zerah. Tamar. Tamar. Prostitute. Incest deceiver one who brought about her own way through those sinful shameful illicit means matthew says right back to matthew 1 just get a feel of this and by the way get a feel of how shocked matthew's readers would have been when they first read this To Judah was born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. The channel of the Messiah through his humanity passes right through the iniquity of Judah and Tamar. Grace upon grace. Next, verse 5, And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. Now Rahab, maybe she's a little more familiar to you than Tamar, right? Because Rahab has a last name. And what is Rahab's last name? Somebody. The harlot. That's right. It's Rahab the harlot. That's her last name. It must be because everywhere she appears in the Bible, that handle is given to her. Her name never appears without the harlot attached to it. Okay, so it's Rahab the harlot. Canaanite prostitute brothel owner. Okay, Joshua chapter 2. Joshua 2, then then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. 
So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I, I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for, your, uh, for you will overtake them. But she brought them out up to the roof and had hidden them in the stalks of flasks, which she had laid on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to them and she made her confession about she knows the city's going to fall and she wants them to be merciful to her. This is Rahab the harlot. Right? That's what the text calls her. She owned a brothel in Jericho, and there she took in these two spies, and that would be pretty typical, I suppose, for spies. That's a good place to go and get information. So that's where they go. They go to her. And what if we follow on the text uh, longer, what we would find out is that, of course, she calls out to them and says, listen, I've protected you. You now protect me. When the city falls, as I know it surely will, then you must protect me. And they say, bring your your parents and your and your siblings into your house. And, and when the city falls, not a hair on your head will be harmed. So all is well. What we learn later is, is that this Rahab marries an Israelite soldier. And the product of the marriage of that Israelite soldier enters her into the lineage of the Messiah. Right? Back to Matthew chapter 1. So Salmon, the Israelite soldier who participated in the destruction of Jericho, marries this former prostitute and brothel owner named Rahab, and the fruit of that union is a man by the name of Boaz. A man by the name of Boaz. Grace upon grace. Not only did God in His grace spare her life, But God, in His grace, brought her into the channel of the Messiah. Brought her into the channel of the Messiah. And that leads us to the third, verse 5. Right? To Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. Ruth. Now, the story of Ruth is a little more complicated. At first blush, you would say, Ruth, no, wait a minute, I remember Ruth. She's that virtuous young woman, right, in the book of Ruth. she got her own book named after her. She's a virtuous young woman. So, so what, are you, what are you saying to me? Why are you, why are you saying that that's a shameful thing? Well, it goes a little further than Ruth for the shame. Her shame is a little more hidden, but it's still very much there. And what we know about Ruth is that she was a Moabitess. She was a Moabitess, and the Moabitess... As a, as, a, as a member of the tribe of Moabite, she was cursed. She was a cursed foreigner, a pagan. So, again, let's go back to the Old Testament, to Genesis, all the way to Genesis 19. And let's be reminded about her lineage, where she comes from. So, Genesis 19, we'll pick it up in uh, verse 27. Genesis 19 is about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? And you know the, the, the vileness that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and the Lord uh, judged the city and he rescued Lot 
and his two daughters and his wife from the city, but his wife and a lack of faith looked back and she was destroyed. And so there's only Lot and his two daughters left coming out of this, this um, valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were located. Verse 27, Now Abraham arose early in the morning, went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. So the whole place is being incinerated. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. And Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him. For he was afraid to stay in Zoar and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it came about on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's of the tribe of Moab, a tribe that was born out of incense or incest. Maybe there was incense too. I don't know, but there's definitely incest involved in the birth of the tribe of Moab. But it's more than that. It's more than just a shameful beginning of her lineage. The Moabites were Israel's most persistent enemy. And so for that, we need to turn ahead a little bit to Numbers 22. And let's kind of pick up the thread there. So go over to Numbers 22 with me. Numbers 22, verse 1. We're fast forwarding now. The the nation has been delivered out of Egypt and they are making their way to the promised land. And in order to come into the promised land, they have to pass through the territory of the Moabites. And all they want to do is use the king's highway and pass through their land. And they offer to pay them for whatever water they use, whatever grass they eat, whatever food they need. They're willing to reimburse them. They just want to go, you know, use the 10 freeway and pass through the city of Upland. That's basically the deal. And the Moabites refuse. Verse 1. Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. I don't like my neighbors. Now, therefore, please come and curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. 
Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now, you know the story, right? Balaam comes out to curse the sons of Israel, and every time he opens his mouth to curse them, what happens? A blessing comes out instead. And eventually, Balak, the king of Moab, gets so frustrated with him, he fires him and sends him home. What the text doesn't tell you directly, but indirectly indicates, and in fact, let's go to chapter 25. We pick it up there. Verse 1. We'll get back to it. Now Israel remained at Shittim. The people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And the Lord was angry with Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord. So that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. What we really find out later is that although Balaam would not curse them, he says to Balak, the king of Moab, listen, don't curse them. Here's what you do. You seduce them. And so you send in your daughters and you you seduce them and you get them to to participate with you in the pornographic worship rites of the Canaanite deities. And that will destroy them that way. And so the sin of Baal Peor, the sin of Peor, in which you look down at verse 9, 24,000 people die in the plague, is brought about by Balaam at the request of Balak, the king of Moab, to crush the nation of Israel. So Moab, born out of incest, a, per- a persistent and, and vile enemy of the nation. Over in Deuteronomy 23, go ahead and turn there. God judges. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, Deuteronomy 23, 3, No Amorite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So God prohibits the Moabites from entering into the assembly of Israel. Back to Matthew 1. By the way, Matthew's gospel must have been infuriating to those uh, proud Jews of the first century when they read this. To Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. By Ruth. Ruth, the descendant of Moab. Ruth, the descendant of the tribe born of incest. Ruth, the descendant of the tribe who had been cut off from Israel because of the wickedness of Moab. Ruth, the one who was a pagan girl and a foreigner, who married illicitly, not illicitly on her part, illicitly on the part of of Malon, the Israelite, who went out and married her out of the land, and then he was slain by the Lord. This is the Ruth who finally attached herself, right, with Naomi to Naomi's God and came back into Israel. That's how we tend to think of her. But you've got to remember her lineage, who she was. 
It is God's grace. He, he rescued her. He rescued her not only from starvation in a physical sense there in the land. He united her with the God of Israel and he brought her back into the land under the protection of the wings of the God of Israel. And he put her into the lineage of the Messiah. That is grace upon grace upon grace. And finally, verse 6, upon grace. And to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon. This one doesn't even get a name. By her of Uriah, literally. By her who had been the wife of Uriah. It's like Matthew can't even bring himself to say that. You know this story, right? This one's familiar to you. Second Samuel 11, we'll just maybe dip in quickly. Second Samuel 11, verse 1, Then it happened in the spring, the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Well, I don't know if she said it exactly like that, but... That was the message. And David was in a fix, wasn't he? David was in such a fix that he schemed to have her husband murdered. So David arranges for her husband, Uriah, to be sent to the front of the battle line and for the troops to withdraw from him and to leave him exposed. And so he falls by the enemy. David kills him. And then after he kills him, he takes her, verse 26, Bathsheba now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her into his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. The thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. You bet. You bet it was. Now, some might say, well, you know, how could she refuse the king of Israel? He was so big. He was so powerful. He took her in. He forced her. Well, the text doesn't indicate that he took and forced her. In fact, the text indicates just the opposite, that she cooperated in this. And in fact, I would say that he didn't take and force her because if he had, then the Bible would indicate that she had some sense of resistance to him. Because later on, one of David's own sons takes his daughter, his uh, sister. Do you remember that? And after she was taken and raped, she goes out wailing, tearing her clothes and made a public scene of it. There's no indication here that Bathsheba wails, tears her clothes or does anything. I believe she was a willing participant in this adulterous affair and an accessory to the fact of murder. She, who had been the wife of Uriah, God slew the baby born of that illicit adulterous affair, right? But then later David went in to his wife and comforted her and she conceived again and gave birth to who? Solomon. Solomon! The next link in the messianic chain. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You couldn't find four more shameful 
examples or illustrations in the lineage of the king. Yet God in His grace and by His providence, He overwhelms it all. Beloved, that ought to give us comfort, right? It doesn't matter a person's upbringing. It doesn't matter what's gone on in a person's past. The grace of God just overwhelms it all. Our God is a God of grace. He reaches out and He takes broken people like you and me. And He makes us His children. Now that's the kind of message that I need to hear in the Christmas time. Because at Christmas, that's when I have opportunity to talk to more people than regular. You get opportunity to talk to family, right? And friends. What's the message of Christmas? Is it about a little baby born in a manger? You know, it sits on the front of a Christmas car, real cute. That's not what it's about. He was born to die. He was born in the shadow of a cross. It's about the grace of God. It's about God condescending to come to, to earth and to take humanness upon himself and to walk among us. And then to give himself sacrificially on our behalf on that cross. And the grace of God will overwhelm people's sins. Just like it did overwhelm Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. John MacArthur writes, quote, If God has called sinners by grace to be his forefathers, should we be surprised when he calls them by grace to be his descendants? The answer is no, not a bit. Not a bit. If you're here this morning and God, by his grace, has not yet called you into relationship with him, And my prayer for you is that you think seriously about what you have heard. It doesn't matter what your past is about. It doesn't matter what you have done or not done. It doesn't matter the mess you've gotten yourselves into. God will overwhelm it in His grace. He will draw you to Himself, opening your eyes to receive the gift of Christmas, the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. Gentlemen, if you'll join me here at the table.